here. We, uh, as a church, we like to go through books of the Bible as much as we can. Every once in a while, we'll do sort of maybe a little, something a little bit more topical or some sort of mini-series, but we like to go through uh, books of the Bible. So, recently we started a series on a letter. It's in the latter part of the New Testament, First Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter. He's the Peter that shows up in the, in the Gospels. And uh, one reason that we wanted to do this, I mean, it's good to hear it no matter what, whenever, but this book talks a lot about suffering. And suffering is something that's always around. If the economy is great, there's still people suffering. But I think, as I prayed about, when you've got more people than usual without work, in a tough place, uh, not knowing what's going to become of their job or their income or uh, their retirement or whatever, plus just the uh, ongoing presence of disease, death, loss, setbacks, whatever, it's just, it's always good to hear what Peter's saying. So we're, we're still fairly early in this letter, First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And if you don't uh, have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of worship. Do, uh, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but, you, you know, you remember back in school, especially high school, summer reading? Remember the summer reading lists? I don't know if it ever happened to you that a book that they had you read actually became a book that you loved. Uh, now, I definitely remember books not becoming the books that I loved. Uh, Wuthering Heights? Ugh. Ugh. I was Wuthering after reading. All of us collectively weathered. And I don't know when it was in school that this was assigned, maybe 10th grade or so, but it's a book called uh, The Chosen. And the author's name, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly. You can let me know afterward if I'm not. Chaim Potok. Uh, a Jewish author, died about 10 years ago, a New Yorker. Very interesting, both an author and a rabbi and was formerly trained in Orthodox Judaism, so could, could write from that perspective from the inside as uh, someone living in the United States but formally trained in Orthodox Judaism. This book, The Chosen, it was really one of, my, one of my favorite books. And it's written from the perspective of a young man named Reuven. And he becomes friends with another young man, one of his peers, named Danny, Danny Saunders. And the time frame of this book, it's in New York City, I think in Brooklyn, and it's in the 1940s. It's, uh, it's during and after World War II. Danny, uh, the friend, is from an extremely orthodox Jewish background, what's known as Hasidic Judaism. The story is told from the perspective of Reuven. Reuven is from a more um, liberal, progressive Jewish family. And it points in the story, this, this makes for a real clash. And one of the clashes, it's a, really, it's a really jarring scene I'm about to read, is when Reuven, who's telling the story, is over at the Saunders house, this Orthodox household. And Reuven mentions that his dad, remember this is the mid-1940s, is excited about what looks, about Zionism, about the formation of... Uh, a nation called Israel for the Jews. The Orthodox Jewish community, at least that's represented here, did not like that because it seemed contrived 
and it seemed to have Gentile fingerprints all over it. It was not something that God did. It was something that politicians had worked out. Now, you're going to hear the word goyim in this quote. Goyim would be like Gentiles or secular people. Reuven, sitting at the dinner table, makes the mistake of saying that his dad is excited about this, and the whole family goes silent. And then there's an explosion, and here's what happens. Reb Saunders, Danny's father, his eyes just get wild with rage, points a finger at Reuven and says, Who are these people? Who are these people? He shouted in Yiddish. And the words went through me like knives. When the Messiah comes, we will have Eretz Yisrael, a holy land, not a land contaminated by Jewish goyim. I sat there stunned and terrified, engulfed by his rage. His reaction had caught me so completely by surprise that I had quite literally stopped breathing. And now I found myself gasping for breath. I felt as if I were being consumed by flames. I didn't know what to do or say. I just sat there and gaped at him. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should be built by Jewish goyim, by contaminated men, Reb Saunders shouted again. Never. Not while I live. Who says these things? Who says we should now build Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land? And where is the Messiah? Tell me, we should forget completely about the Messiah? For this six million of our people were slaughtered? That we should forget completely about the Messiah? That we should forget completely about the master of the universe? Just a jarring scene. And, you know, growing up very Gentile, very little exposure to, to that culture, reading that, it just, it was a snippet of the feelings and the experience of people who believe that everything is made right by the Messiah, but He hasn't come. He hasn't come yet. And where, where is the anger coming from? Or let's back, And I know it's fiction, but... There are men like Reb Saunders. How does he know that the Messiah is going to come do these things? How does he know that the Messiah is the one who should establish a holy land for his people? He got it from the prophets. He has studied the law and the prophets. He knows what's written there. He, stu- that's, he studied them in depth. Have you ever thought about it from the perspective of the prophets? Uh, that the prophets were people that God provided to see things. We're going to talk about this more in a second. To see things from far off, but not get to see or feel, feel the fulfillment. And th- there's a place in the Gospels, this is in Matthew 13, where Jesus is just telling all these parables. He's just stacking up parables. And His disciples say to Him, "What are the parab- explain the parables. We don't understand them. What what does it mean? And Jesus says to them, many prophets, many prophets and righteous people, they long to see what you see. And they didn't get to. Many prophets long to hear what you hear. And they didn't get to. You get get Jesus acknowledging, see, I, I know what you can't know. I know the depth of the longing for people who saw that the Messiah, 
he'll do it all. And they never get to see him. And here's the thing. Peter is about to tell us this. What the prophets got to talk about, but didn't get to experience, you are getting to experience. And you've got to understand this if you're going to suffer well. Again, this letter is to people who are suffering. And this is early in the letter. It's not a lecture. It's not a theology tract. It is theological, but it's a letter. And he's saying this. You must understand that what the prophets longed for is what you have. If you don't understand that you have this, you can't suffer well. If you do understand, you can suffer with joy. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 8. Speaking about Jesus, Peter writes, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that now, as we consider this text, that that a consideration of men that lived over a millennium ago, over two millennia ago, won't be to us something dry or distant or irrelevant, but it really would be a means of understanding the good news that we need more than anything, the gospel itself. We pray that you'll open our ears to that end, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to say this before we go any further in looking at this passage, because we're looking at at the prophets. And this needs to be said on the front end. The Bible is unashamedly a book about the supernatural. Now, that doesn't mean it's not real life, because what, what the Scriptures are showing us is that real life is both natural and supernatural. And you find both in abundance in the book, because the book is realistic. But we don't want to play down the fact that it is a book with, literally, angels, demons, miracles, and prophets. Prophets. Now, you know, if you've, if you've been around the Bible, if you've been around the church, hearing the word prophet doesn't, probably doesn't jar you that much. Like, yeah, there were prophets, you know, kind of like there's, there were lepers, you know. There's lepers and there's, there's prophets and I'm good with all those. I don't want leprosy, but I'm good with all those things being in the Bible. The prophets, think about this. People called oracles 
That's something that you'll find that's as old as Greek mythology, even older than Greek mythology, all the way up to the matrix. Okay, what is an oracle? An oracle is someone who has this, this supernatural pipeline to God or to the gods and who can speak to you and tell you what God says or what the gods say. Now, that is just inescapably supernatural, right? Uh, th- there have always been in different cultures um, people who c- claim to look into the future. They might be called seers or, or, or soothsayers or prophets. But the thing is, you have those for real in the Bible. Think about it this way. Some of the most clear, vivid prophecies appear in in prophetic writings that were written in the 8th century B.C. The The United States isn't even 250 years old yet. This is 800 years before the things happen. There is one text in the prophecy of Isaiah that is so clearly and vividly about Jesus that in readings of the Law and the Prophets in most synagogues, this text is not read. It was written 800 years plus before the birth of Jesus. This is supernatural. And Peter, he's writing a group of people, that they're, you know, they're Gentiles, they live in modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, they're hurting, and he brings up... Why is he bringing this up? And... Here's what I want to unpack. First off, how did prophets know this stuff? I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But what did the prophets know? What was revealed to the prophets that they give to us? Or the sermon title. What's the prophet's agenda? Because apparently, suffering people need it. What is it? But first off, how did prophets know this stuff? And really, that's not explained in depth. Um, Peter wrote another letter in the New Testament. It's called Second Peter. It comes after First Peter. I think you see the logic of it. And early on in Second Peter, Peter says this, that, that no prophecy ever came about by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were moved along by the Spirit of God. But in this text that we just read, he gets a little bit more particular about who it is that reveals what he reveals to prophets. Who is it in particular? He says in verse 11 that these prophets, you know, they searched, they inquired, they were curious about the, about the messages that were given to them. Inquire, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Now, how did they get this stuff? We don't always know. Sometimes it might be very passive. They see a vision. They just they don't know the vision's coming, and they see it, and they record it. Sometimes it seems more active. It talks about they search, they inquire. What does that mean? Does that mean they're like straining, staring into the sky? I don't, we don't know. Can they hear God's voice? Sometimes yes, but maybe not every time. But what Peter wants you to know is it's specifically... The Spirit of Christ that was doing that. That's important. What was revealed to them? 
Is it just, well, I'm going to wipe out the Philistines. Well, I'm going to wipe out Moab. Well, yeah, those things come up. But when you look at it as a whole, what did the prophets impart? What's revealed to them? Okay, verse 10. Peter's just been talking about, you know Jesus. You love Jesus. You've never seen Him physically, but you know Him and you love Him. He saved you. And then what does he say in verse 10? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about what? About the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. And then look at what he says in verse 12. This is amazing if we'll see it. It says, It was revealed to them, as to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. And he's writing to non-Jewish people. And the prophecies seem very Jewish. Like, if you're not an Israelite, who cares? Unless you're in the prophecy getting annihilated. Who cares? He says, no, 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 no. They were at some level working for you in Asia Minor. They were not serving, uh, serving not themselves but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, what did he just say there? He just said this. The stuff that was revealed to the prophets is the same stuff that has been announced to you. Who announced it? It was announced by people who came to you and preached the gospel. So what does that mean? What was revealed to the prophets was the gospel. And Peter says, you know, that salvation that you have, Gentiles, right with God, people not physically descended from Abraham, right with God, forgiven of their sins. That's what the prophets wrote about. This grace that we all need. That's what the prophets wrote about. This gospel that people came into Asia Minor and preached to you and you believed it. That's what the prophets wrote about. Now, why am I harping? I mean, it's there, but... Why are we drawing this out? It it is a big deal for us as a church that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament. Not just the Gospels. But even in stuff that just seems distant and there's no mention of Jesus or cross or apostles or church. I mean, books like Hosea and Habakkuk. They are ultimately about Jesus. My hope is that when you come here, and I hope you'll keep coming, and if you don't know Jesus, I hope you'll keep coming and trying this on. Because we're thinking through this together. But the hope is that whatever text we're in, First Peter or you know Nahum, the clean pages of your Bible, that where we end up is Jesus. Why? Because with the bird's eye view, all the prophecies are about Him. Now, if you read some of these prophecies, they don't seem to be about him. You know, it's stuff like, Hey, Philistia, you're about to be wiped out. Hey, Moab, you're about to be wiped out. You know, it's not like you read that and go, I just feel so encouraged. You know, I feel lifted. That's the best quiet time I've ever had. The annihilation of Moab. Okay, at what level is this... How is it about the gospel? Let me give you an example. One of the prophets was Hosea. 
And Hosea starts in a very dramatic fashion. Because God comes to the prophet Hosea and He has him marry an unfaithful woman. And as I've said from time to time from up front, you know, I don't want to be more earthy than the Bible, but I don't want to be less earthy than the Bible. So let me give you a little disclaimer here. If, if you don't like the word whore or whoring with a W, don't read the prophets. Because that is one of God's preferred ways of describing the infidelity and the wandering off of His people. It shows up more than you might imagine. And that really comes crashing in in Hosea. God has Hosea marry an unfaithful woman and say, keep loving her. Keep going after her. Go rescue her when she's in her infidelities so that my people can have a lived out picture of what? Of who I am. That I am not the God who goes after the good people. There are none. That I'm not after the people that I look ahead and go, now who's going to be a really good Christian guy or a good Christian girl and always stick to it and stay by me and do what's right? You know what the answer to that would be? Zero. So I go after those who go whoring whoring after other gods. And believe me, the book of Hosea, there are he chews his people out. Very direct, very demonstrative. But then, almost at the end of the book, you'll have God just all of a sudden say, how can I let go of you? How can I give you up? Very direct, very upset. Lovers quarrel. I'll never let you go. I'll redeem you. I'll cleanse you. I'll take you as my lover. What can we call that but the gospel? And it may use names in there we don't understand. It might talk about geography that we don't understand. But that is the good news. That God doesn't save on the basis of merit. And He goes after the people with demerit. That's the gospel. And whether you're here as a long-time Christian or whether you are brand new to these things, that is what we most need. And it is in the New Testament, but it's in the prophets too. And the hope is that whatever sermon you come to, if you go to a community group, whatever, that where we always end up is that this is about what Jesus did that we can't do. How Jesus paid for what I don't want, but what I deserve. But notice this too. Um, Verse 11, when it encapsulates, well, what did they say about the gospel? Peter says, you can kind of sum it up in two things. Verse 11 says that the Spirit of Christ, who's revealing these things, says that He predicted, number one, the sufferings of Christ, and number two, the subsequent glories. Okay, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And these prophets are seeing this stuff from way off. Now, that will actually help you understand the Gospels if you understand this. When the prophets saw these things from way off, there's just a lot that we don't know about what they understood. But it seems to be the case that when they saw these things from afar, it looked like just one thing. 
In other words, when there were prophecies, not just about the suffering of a Messiah, but of a Messiah who came and He brought back all the beauty of Jerusalem and all the beauty of the Holy Land, and all God's people were rescued forever. It seemed like that was just one bundle. That's why that rabbi in the story, Reb Saunders, is so upset. When Messiah comes, everything will be fixed. But we know something that they didn't know. At least, I think they didn't know. Is that when He comes the first time, those were the sufferings. He had to suffer. The Christ had to suffer. Then He rose and went to glory. But then, the Messiah will come back. He will be glorious. And He's going to bring His people into glory. Now, why is that so important? Because Peter, is, and Peter, who grew up with this stuff, is saying, what is the pattern in the prophets? First, the Christ suffered. Then came the glory. Why is that important to these people in Asia Minor? Because they're suffering right now. They're suffering, and there's probably little to no feeling of glory in their lives. Hey, yeah, my business just got shut down. Hey, my, my, uh, my house just got burned down because I don't worship the local gods. I love Jesus. Yeah, isn't that glorious? My kid got beat up because they know that their dad doesn't worship the local god. Isn't that glorious? And Peter's saying this, you've got to understand this, and we as a room, we need to understand this. We live between the two comings. And that set the tone for our lives. And that means this. There is unbelievable glory waiting on us. But we suffer now. If we only knew that God said, suffer now, and there were no glory, it'd be despair. It'd be hopeless. Who wants to be a Christian? But if you suffer knowing that one of these days, either you will die and go immediately into the arms of this Messiah who will come back and set all things right, or, and I have no idea when this will be, in the middle of your daily life, completely unexpected, He will come again. And then all those other bundles of prophecies will all play out. Think about it this way. Um, The movie Apollo 13... If there's anything that should make you think of the prophets, Apollo 13, a natural segue. You know, it's the mission where something goes wrong in this lunar module, and they were going to land on the moon and walk on the moon. It's three crew, crew of three, and uh, they have to completely recalculate and retool. And um, not just the nation, but the whole world was just on pins and needles about would they even make it back alive? Because even if you can get back to planet Earth, you got to hit it at just the right angle so you don't burn up on impacts, okay? The, the leader of the crew is a guy named Jim Lovell. Now, we, I don't know if it happened this way, but in the movie, and really, isn't that what we want? Uh, is in the movie, there, there is a scene where Jim's wife and her two daughters, they go to tell Jim's mother, elderly mother in the nursing home, what's happening. And when they come into the nursing home, one of these orderlies has brought out a big TV and he's trying to pick up the news, talking about her son, you know, being on the... What's, what's going on with Apollo 13? And they can't pick up a reception. She's this old lady and she's complaining about it. 
And they sit down with her, and Jim's wife says, um, we need to tell you something. Uh, there's been an accident. Jim is okay. Um, but something has gone wrong in the spacecraft, and Jim's not going to be able to walk on the moon. Now, at this point in the movie, this lady, I don't know who they got to play this old lady. She looks like a frail, confused old lady. And she says, but the TV said that he would. And Jim's wife explains that, well, there was some kind of explosion and there's some danger in it. And when she says that, you know, she's with an older daughter and a younger daughter. This little girl just breaks down crying, just, you know, like goes into her mother's chest and just crying. And they cut back to, <laughs> cut back to Jim's mom. And this old kind of frail, confused lady, her face just goes like stone. And she looks at this little girl and she says... Are you scared? And the little girl, you know, just through tears, is nodding. And she says, she gets a look on her. Like, I would be afraid to fight this woman at this point. I don't fight old ladies, but if I did, I would not want to fight that one. She gets this just kind of fierce look on her face, and she says, again, it's her son that might get killed. She says, well, let me tell you something, honey. If they could get a washing machine to fly, my Jimmy could land it. Yeah, amen. And I think as a movie maker, that's Ron Howard like throwing you a bone, you know, because he is just emotionally working you and just, you know, putting you through the paces. And I looked, at, I looked the movie up on Netflix and the genre, the first thing it said was emotional, you know, just, it's just, it, you know, it's going to turn out fine. Just putting you through the ringer. But Ron Howard gives you that moment, whether it happened or not, to say, this is mom. She's, she's telling you what the deal is. And, okay, now here's, what I wanna, here's what I want us to think about. In that moment, Jim Lovell's mother is a prophet. And what Peter's saying is that if we will let the prophets, if we will let them... They can do for us in real life what she was doing for her granddaughter. That it, it's, it's the prophets that may seem very distant. Like, I don't, I don't understand the names of these cities and towns and people groups they talk about. Peter would say, okay, stop. Stop. These are men. And there were prophetesses too. But these are men that can come to you, you who have no job. You who are underemployed, you who are sick, you who have chronic pain, you who are struggling in your loneliness, you who struggle with substance abuse, they are coming to you and saying, now look, what happened with the first batch of prophecies? He did every one of them. That those gospels in the front of your New Testament are eyewitness accounts. That he did every one of them that we said he would. And it gets as detailed as his hometown and what animal he rides in on, on Palm Sunday. It was exactly the way it was revealed to us it happened. And here's the thing. If that happened just the way it was predicted 
And it's predicted that if you trust in Him, and you suffer now, and you set your hope not on things getting better now, but that our Messiah will come and set all things right, He's going to land it. It's a lock. He will do it. And so, this is the exhortation that I want to end with, because it's the, it's the exhortation at the end of this passage. What are we supposed to use? Our minds. You know, one of the best things you can do in your own family, or with new family, or in-laws, or whatever, is quickly learn to have realistic expectations. You know, if you have a grandparent that is absolutely uh, introverted and quiet, don't expect to go over to their house and visit with a chatterbox. You know, change your expectations and your life can improve. And in a sense, Peter is saying this, what, what are you doing with your mind? Are you thinking that this world is for my comfort and God wants me to feel happy always? Verse 13, Therefore, in light of everything I just said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, being realistic, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just on the authority of God's Word, here's what I want to leave you with. God is Emmanuel. Christ is Emmanuel. God is with us. He's going to invite us to eat at His table with us. You can trust Him. You can ask Him for the job. You can ask Him to help in your family crisis. You can ask Him for healing. He's that real. He's that present. But you've got to have a place to park your hope. And even sometimes as you're praying for things, if you feel like, I keep asking and He keeps saying no that can make you feel hopeless. Peter says, do not place your hope in the answer to prayer that you've already decided upon. Park your hope in the fulfillment of a prophecy that will happen. The bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ to a fallen world to renew all things. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, even as we said last week, we would say it again, that we, uh, we naturally live by sight. We don't live by faith. And even after you've proven yourself and showed your faithfulness and shown that we need not worry, that we can trust even the supernatural things, that we live by sight and not by faith, please enable us even as we feel things that are hard in our bodies, in our families, in our work, in our income, or lack of, enable us to set our real hope on the real return of Your Son. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Your name. Amen.